Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Amen. How are we doing today? Happy Father's Day, everybody. Oh my gosh. All right. It is that kind of day. I'm going to start off with the dad joke because I am one of those now, and that's the theme of our morning. You ready for this? What do you call it when Batman skips church? Christian Bale. Come on. Yes, he played Batman. The best jokes are the ones you have to explain afterwards, everybody. I think that was amazing, man. (laughs) Welcome to Crossroads. Glad you're here. Today we're talking about parenting, and let's get the obvious out of the way. I have no idea what I'm doing talking about parenting, all right? I've been a parent for 10 months on, I don't know, Tuesday or something like that. And you're looking at me and saying to me, if you've been a parent for 10 months in one day or 10 years, or maybe you reset and you have multiple kids. And right now I'm in a phase where I'm figuring out why. Um, You're looking at me saying, what is this kid going to teach me about parenting? I honestly have been sitting in that tension all week, hoping that you're not going to look at me and be like, I'm just going to download some app and listen to something on my phone. So I went to Twitter because that's where we find wisdom in our world. And I... I looked up parenting tips, okay? I'm going to share a couple that I found that I don't have yet because it's only been about 10 months. Uh, Telling a three-year-old that her dried-up markers are first-world problems will not stop her from crying. (laughs) That was a good one. Another person said, a parenting tip, if you don't know where your children are in the house, turn off the internet and watch them magically appear. (laughs) That one, I think, is gold, man. (laughs) Uh, The third one... Tonight's parenting lesson, if a two-year-old says, I'm going to puke for the love of God, don't call her bluff, I need a shower. (laughs) I am learning these things as I go because I'm going to be honest with you, when we talk about wisdom and we talk about parenting, the first thing you and I have to do, especially me, is come to the realization that I don't have all the answers, I don't know all the wisdom, because frankly, I'm not there yet. And that's the beauty of what we're doing. So just to kind of confirm to you guys why I'm up here, is we teach through the Proverbs. The Proverbs we talked about last week is a compilation of generational wisdom from the Hebrew people. And they said they're they're Proverbs from Solomon, their first part of the first book of the first chapter in Proverbs. And it says, this is how we ascribe this kind of wisdom. It is from Solomon, which means that he didn't necessarily write them all, but it's an adjective to describe the best wisdom they could give all of these sayings. So we defined wisdom last week as knowing what to do and when to do it because you know who's in control of it. And here's the deal. These are not, these are not, these are not my words at all. These are the words from generations and generations and generations inspired by God that has been given the highest stamp of wisdom approval, which is it's from the wisest man Solomon that ever lived. So when I'm up here today talking to you, it does not come from my 10 months of wisdom of parenting, because I know less today than when I started this thing 10 months ago, I feel like. It comes from what God says is the model of what parenting should be. And so a proverb we defined is an object lesson or short saying that helps us choose the course of action to follow or avoid. And today, we're talking about what that means for parents. There's an author that had this saying, and I loved it. We're going to use it a couple times this morning. It says, you cannot make your kids love Jesus, but there are things you can do as a parent 
that will cause your kid to run to God, and there are things you can do that will cause your kids to run from God. We're talking about Proverbs and parenting because God sets up a model of how to raise kids so they run to and not from. And just so we can establish an equal playing field here, when we talk about the Proverbs of parenting, it's not strictly for parents. There's a commentator, and he, I love what he said about the Proverbs as a whole. He said, the principles articulated throughout the book are as helpful for living the Christian life as they were for providing guidance to the ancient theocratic community of Israel. What that means is that all the Proverbs, whether they are from parent to kid, which a lot of them are, brother to sister, son to dad, all the Proverbs carry wisdom that's applicable for all of us regardless of life stage. So if you're a parent... If you're a parent, you hopefully see a direct connection to what you can implement in your life. And if you think as a parent that you've got this down, have another one. Let's have another conversation in 10 months, right? If you think as a grandparent, I got this down, what this does is we sit back and we take joy in one, the fact that we're not direct parents anymore from what I'm told, and two, we take joy in knowing that we shape and form the lives of our kids and our grandkids if you're a kid. These Proverbs show us the beauty of God's good order and design and hopefully paint a picture for how we're to respect and love and treat our parents that reciprocate that kind of feeling. And if you're somebody without kids, it's still beautiful because it paints a framework of how God loves us. It paints a framework of his order in our world. And so when we talk about the Proverbs week in and week out, whether we feel like there's a direct application or not, the book was written to be directly applied to all life stages and phases And so I don't want people to sit here today and be like, I'm not a parent, I'm going to check out. The wisdom of God still applies to wherever you're at in your life stage. And we're going to use one verse to go through kind of the construct of the proverb on parenting. But before we do that, we got two goals on Sunday morning at Crossroads. We say it every week. One is we want to come together and know God. We know God by knowing his scripture because it tells us who he is because we can't call him on the phone. And so as we read the scriptures, we get a picture of his character, one that we can never get to the end of because he's bigger than us and that kind of majesty causes us to worship because I need need my God to be bigger than me and to know more than me on things like parenting, right? And then two, we know God fully when we don't just know about, but we experience his influence and his presence and so we worship. We recognize and we respond and we worship the God who's worthy of it. And so as we get into our text this morning, couple things to note. One is that this isn't just you sit and listen and check the box if you're entertained. This is something that we believe is an active participation required element, meaning the Holy Spirit works inside of you to shape you into the likeness of Jesus. And so when we listen all the time, we ask how God is doing that in the moment. What it means is that we enter into together diving into knowing about the character and wisdom of a God who cares for us. So I'm going to ask that we pray before we go. I'm going to ask that you pray for you. I'm going to give you a couple seconds just to pray silently and ask the Holy Spirit that resides in you to teach you and inspire you towards God's heart and his character today. And then I ask that you pray for me because I'm talking about parenting and I've done this for 10 months. All right, everybody? Let's pray together. God, I'm thankful that we can gather together on rainy days and sunny days, on days they're just a regular Sunday and on ones where we celebrate parts of our society that you've ordered and given as a grace. So God, give us grace today as we dive into your scriptures. May it inspire us towards you and joy. I pray um, that you teach us through your text this morning. I'd ask if you're comfortable to take a couple seconds and just 
silently pray that God does something in your soul this morning as he shapes it into the image of his son Jesus that we're called to live into the, the ways of as followers of him. And then I'd ask that you pray for me as we talk about this today, that God's character and his wisdom on parenting is revealed for all phases and ages this morning as we open the scriptures. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Now we're in it together. We're in Proverbs 22. This is a coffee mug proverb for people that grew up in the tribe. If you haven't heard of it before, it goes like this. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Just let's get something out of the way in the Old Testament, especially when it referred to genders as masculine. That meant everybody and all people because it was a male-driven society. So it doesn't mean if I have girls, I can tune out, right? So it says, train a kid in the way they should go, and when they are old, he or she, he will not turn from it. This is going to be our outline this morning, and there's three parts we're going to break down and talk about. The first First is the idea of training. What does that mean? What goes into it? What's required from us? The second is it says train a kid in the way that he should go. So what does that mean? What way should a kid go and how do we get them there? And finally, what does it mean at the end when it says when he is old, he will not turn from it? Three things that are going to drive our discussion this morning. Let's start with the first word, the idea of training. So when we talk about the idea of training in the Old Testament, that word there in the Hebrew literally means to dedicate. And we see it a couple different places. In, in Deuteronomy 20, it says, Moreover, the officers are to say to the troops who among you has built a new house, and not, here's our word, dedicated it. He may go home lest he die in battle, and someone else dedicates it. What we mean when we say train, literally the Hebrew means dedicate. And what that verse shows us is that dedication gives purpose. And so when it says train a child in the ways they should go, it means dedicate them towards the purposes of God. Because you can dedicate them for good things or bad things. It's why one of my favorite things we do at CBC is, is parent or child dedications. We get people up here and people bring their cute, cute babies up here to be awkward on stage. And then afterwards we ask them a couple questions and we circle around them and pray for them. And what that is, is us as a body, as a community, pledging to dedicating our kids to walk in the ways of the Lord. We commit to something together and it's, on, it's perpetual. So what this word means when it says train, it's not necessarily military in terms of teaching them how to fight, kind of though. It really means dedicate them to a purpose or a cause. So this says the first thing we should do as parents is to dedicate our child to a cause. It's going to define that cause in a second. The word also carries with it this idea in the Hebrew of, of narrowing. So you see this blob that is a baby and it says narrow them essentially, refine them in the ways they should go. It, it reminds me of, um, you guys know the, the, the sculpture David from Michelangelo? The weird looking guy with no arms in Italy somewhere? Michelangelo, when he was one of the greatest sculptures in the history of our world, was asked about how he comes about creating something that beautiful. And he says, every block of stone has a statue inside it. And it's the task of the sculpture to discover it. This idea 
that what we do as parents is we dedicate our kids to narrow them into the ways that they should go, the ways of the Lord, as we rip away the things that don't belong there, that isn't their true purpose. And when it says narrow in Proverbs, we see example after example. When it says train in Proverbs, we see example after example of what that might look like. And it usually begins with the word listen. So we left off last week in verse 1-8. It comes right after the purpose statement in Proverbs. And it says, listen, my child, to the instructions of your father. That word listen is found over 30 times in the book. And when it says listen, what it means is this is how you train kids. This is how you train people to live into the way they're supposed to go. So each time we stop down and see that word listen, it's telling us what it means to train. And the first thing we have to understand is because it's in our text, in our book over 30 times, is it paints a picture that the training or the dedicating, like I said, isn't a one-time thing, but it's an actively involved process. So the first thing it paints for parents is it says that you will be actively involved in your kid's life. And here's the deal. That's something we recognize as good whether or not you believe in Jesus or not. There's all these stats out there that tell us that kids that graduate high school will leave the faith. And one of the determining factors on if they do or not is that parents are involved in their lives throughout their growing upness. Um, the National Study of Youth and Religion said just 1% of teens ages 15 to 17 raised by parents who attached little importance to religion, were highly religious in their mid to late 20s. In contrast, 82% of children raised by parents who talked about faith in their home, attached great importance to their beliefs, and were active in their congregations, were themselves religiously active as young adults, according to data from the, la- from the latest wave of the National Study on Youth and Religion. USC put out a poll and said 74% of married couples who were both evangelicals also had kids who were evangelical. There are stats about how it benefits a kid if both parents believe in Jesus and actively live that out. A staggering one for me is the weight of fathers. It's Father's Day, the weight of fathers on the faith of their kids. Uh, One survey found that if a a child is the first person in the household to become a Christian, there's a 3.5 probability that everyone else in the household will follow. If the mother's the first person, there's a 17% chance the family will follow. If a father is the first person to become a Christian, there's a 93% probability everyone else in the household will follow. It makes this case that the idea of training a kid or training a family in the way they should go is an active and ongoing process. And why that's difficult is because we live in a place where it's easy to farm out parenting. You hire tutors, you sit them down in front of Netflix, you drop them off at youth group, and you say, go and let somebody else do this job for you because they're better at it than me. Even aspiring, you know, malicious intent. Sometimes as parents, we just don't know what to do. But as you look at the numbers... What happens time and time again is it paints a clear picture that the healthiest kids are ones where they have active, involved relationship with their parents. I was a youth pastor for, I don't know, three, four, five, 27 years it felt like. And um, the most difficult job and the question that we still ask and there's every conference and then I have when I talk with Nick about students is how do we get parents to engage their students in discussion? And a couple things are difficult about that. One, I said the word students in discussion at the same time, okay? Uh, two is sometimes parents don't know what to do and they don't know how to do it. And what this study shows us, what most of them show us is that it's gonna be messy and you're gonna fight and fall a lot. But the parents that are actively engaged in trying to take 
a, a lead role in the development of their kids that say throughout their life, listen, 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 not listen to him or listen to her or drop off and pick up. Those parents have healthier kids in the faith. Uh, James DeRush is an author and he said, Proverbs suggests the act of dedicating in our verse is focused more on an intentional, sustained, God-dependent shepherding of our children's hearts as they grow into adulthood one in which children themselves are aware of the parents' trajectory-setting intentions. This is not a passive calling for dads and moms. Deuteronomy 6 paints the same picture, which is the keynote verse in the Old Testament on parenting. It sets the tone of what you should do as fathers and mothers. We read it every time we dedicate kids and parents. These commandments I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. The idea of training up kids is an everyday discussion. Christian Smith put a poll out and talked about some of the results I read. He's a sociologist at the University of Notre Dame, and he said, parents, for better or worse, are actually the most influential pastors of their children. So fundamentally, where we begin in this conversation is that as a parent, you have the greatest influence and weight on your kid. It doesn't matter if they have a pastor in their life or not. That's got to be you. So when we talk about how to train up kids, your influence is the biggest. Your influence is the weightiest. Your influence has lasting consequences. Whether you see it or not, whether you think it does or not, whether you're pretty sure they don't listen at whatever you say or not, they do. And if you want kids' faith to last, get involved in their life and do what the proverb says and say again and again and again, listen. So it says listen, it says train them up in the ways they should go. So the first thing we have to notice is that training seemingly is perpetual. The second thing, and it, it makes this case throughout the Proverbs, is that training literally saves lives. When we raise kids in the way of the Lord, it's not just about like, I want them to look nice and get into good colleges. It means they're healthier and safer. Proverbs 1.9, right after verse 8, when it says, listen, says, for they will be like an elegant garland on your head and pendants around your neck. So it says, if you listen to the wisdom of your parents, they will be, those wisdom words will be like a garland on your head and a pendant on your neck. Let's decode some of those. Garland on your head signified victory. Think of old sports in ancient Greece. You won a garland when you were victorious over something. A pendant signified safety, protection, go before you. It's an old Egyptian proverb that they use time and time again. So the picture it's painting is if you listen to the wisdom of your parents, one, it's going to signify to people that you've already beat foolishness, and two, the wisdom of your parents that's founded in the fear of the Lord goes out in front of you and protects you from foolishness that tries to attack you. It's kind of like when you get married and you put a wedding ring on somebody, you know? So my wife wears a ring, and it means two things. One, I beat every other man that wanted to marry her. I won, okay? It means I won, and I did. I am victorious, thank you. Two, hopefully, if another guy thinks she's attractive and they want to say, hey, how are you? They will see the ring in her finger and back away, you know? So when it says they're like garlands and pendants, it's making this case that the wisdom of God is, is a sign of your impending victory and it protects you from foolishness that tries to come your way. Because here's the deal. If we don't follow on a practical level the wisdom of God and the wisdom of God that's passed down through our parents, children normally don't turn out as well. There's a center for social justice. It's based out of London and it said, and I'm going to quote it, it's a long one. 
Family breakdown is also very closely associated with poor outcomes for children. Children who experience family breakdown are more likely to experience behavior problems, perform less well in school, need more medical treatment, leave school and home earlier, become sexually active, pregnant, or a parent at an early age, and report more depressive symptoms and higher levels of smoking, drinking, and other drug use during adolescence and adulthood. That's why Proverbs 20.20 says, the one who curses his father and mother, his lamp will be extinguished in the blackest darkness. That word curse there literally means to make light of. That word, that word curse literally doesn't mean to curse at. It means to say it's not a big deal. So when your parents come at you with wisdom, if you're a kid and you're saying it's not that big deal, I don't need to listen, it's saying you will not end up well. And numbers show us that. So when we talk about training, it's perpetual. It's literally life-saving. And then finally, we see in Proverbs 3, it reminds us of God's good design. My child, do not forget my teaching but let your heart keep my commandments, this perpetual sharing of wisdom, for they will provide a long and full life and well-being for you. That word well-being in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word shalom, which we've talked about at length. The Hebrew word shalom means God's overarching peace and design for our world. It's what happened at the end of Genesis 1 when he said everything's perfect and it fits together in harmony. So what, what the Proverbs do is they make a case that good parenting isn't just instruction that's perpetual, and it's not just life-saving. It reflects God's good design and good order in our world. And we see it through the Old Testament. That's why in the Ten Commandments, it says in verse 12, honor your father and mother. And it says, this is the only one with a promise that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is going to give you. It, it literally means when you listen to your parents, if they're wise, they save you from death. It talks about the idea that parents literally press into God's good design, and God's good design leads to life. And so when we talk about training, it's good on all sides. It's good for parents, and it's good for kids, and it shapes and forms us in the way that we should go. And that's our next phrase. It says, train a child in the way that we should go. Because here's the deal. If families fail, normally societies follow. The UN put out a study, and they said this, in spite of the many changes that have altered their roles and functions, families continue to provide the natural framework for the emotional, financial, and material support essential to the growth and development of their members, particularly infants and children, and for the care of other dependents, including elderly, disabled, and infirmed. The family, in all its forms, is the cornerstone of the world community. As primary agents for socialization, families remain a vital means of preserving and transforming and transmitting cultural values. Here's why I make this a big deal, because if we don't train our kids well, if we're not perpetually involved in saying, listen to wise instruction, kids get sick and die, families break and societies fall. He says, train your kids, and it is vitally important to get involved. It's not just a you thing, it's a we thing, it's a kid thing. And so Proverbs says the first step is knowing that you need to step in to your kids' lives early and often train your kids and then in the way they should go. When it says the way they should go there, it's actually a Hebrew idiom, and it means according to the dictates of his way. There's two ways to understand this phrase. It's really interesting. The first one is kind of what it says, train the child in the way that he should go according to the dictates of its way. And it implies an idea that you're going to train a child to go kind of according to his bent, right? 
So you're going to train a child to go, but your child's all going to be different. All children are different. And so you're going to train them, and you're going to train them along the lines of how they're wired and formed. And that's beautiful. That's also the scariest thing I have in my life right now on my street. There are several, like, I don't know if it's contagious or not, but it is. Having kids is contagious. You don't want one. Your friends have kids. You're like, I need one of those, you know? And it looks so easy from the outside. And on my street, there are three couples that had a kid. They're, both, they're all like two years old. And one had one a couple months ago. Another one across the street from me had their second kid a couple weeks ago. And the third one right across the street from me is due, you know, yesterday, Right? And what's scary to me, and when I talk to families that have more than one kid, is they look at me and they say, your next one's going to be completely different from this one. And I think to myself, then what am I doing right now? If I can't use what I'm learning, then why is this going to make sense? Why would I have another one? This is hard enough as it is, you know? And so what the Proverbs is saying here is a really beautiful kind of value. It's, it's ascribing to kids. It's saying, know that God made every kid different. And part of training is understanding that one kid is different from the other. And that's a really beautiful grace. In our society, we think we try to do the one plus one is two all the time. If I just do this and I just do this, this is always the outcome. That's not real life. That's just not real life. And I've heard from parents for years that you can try one thing with one kid and another thing with another. And if you do the same for both of them, you usually get two different outcomes. This proverb is a reminder that kids are different because God is diverse. And when you press into it farther, I know it scares me to have another kid and have to relearn what parenting is. But I think it's beautiful because who's to say that I won't have changed as a parent the next go round? It allows the grace for growth. And so it says, train a kid in the way they should go. And the first way we take that is to literally mean the way that they're bent towards, but it's not a complete relativistic statement. It says, train the way in a way that appears to be right or the way they should go. And the second half of that is a confirmation there's a specific way to go and a specific way not to go. We looked at Proverbs 14 last week. There's a way that appears to be right, but in the end leads to death. That's why we need training. It's because kids need to know right from wrong. It says in in, in 22, verse 15 about kids, it says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. I think think this verse, I'm learning and, and sitting in more and more. Essentially what this verse says when it says folly is bound up in the heart of the child, it means it's a part of his nature. When it says folly, it means foolishness or sin. And when it says the heart of a child, the heart in the Old Testament was where they ascribed all meaning and value because they didn't understand how the body worked. So it was their fundamental nature was the heart of people. And it says folly is bound up in the heart of the child. What this makes the case for, what he's saying essentially is that your kid is not perfect. And he was never was. That's a hard one, you know? He's making the case for what we call in the Christian faith original sin. Meaning that you're not a sinner because you sinned. You sinned because you already were a sinner. You're born that way. It's what I learn each and every night with my child when she doesn't sleep. You know, we hit a regression and this last week we tried a new method. Someone is kind enough to share some parenting tips with us. And so we're trying not to pick her up. And we moved her from her crib crib to the pack and play because my kid has phenomenal upper body strength. I mean, clearly. And she... um, We'd put her in a little crib, and the first thing she would do is she'd climb up the crib, and, and she's also in like the 94th percentile height-wise, clearly. And she, um, <laughs> laughing makes it hurt more. She, um, 
She, she will, the first thing she'll do when you put her down in her crib is she'll crawl over to the side, she'll grab the bars and, you know, like ultimate warrior, uh, you know, ninja warrior up this thing and sit at the top like this. And here's the thing, she can crawl up, she can't sit down. She does not know how, right? So she'll just start wailing. And, and we tried the cry it out method, but this is hours in and she's still like tired sitting there. And then one time I'm looking at the monitor, you know, and, and cause I used to watch fun things and, and she had her head down on the side and you can tell she's trying to fall asleep. And so she let go a little bit. And if she falls back, she's going to hit the other side, but she caught herself and banged her head on the front again. <laughs> so we're thinking, what is wrong with her child? And how can we fix this problem? I said, pack and play. It's a mesh screen. And we have a, a, a Swedish one. It's a mesh screen. So she can't crawl up it. Right. And so we're trying to sleep train with my child. And three nights ago, they say, don't pick the kid up. Whatever you do, don't pick the kid up. Nights one through three, lay down next to him. Don't touch them in the room and just speak nice things to him. You know, so I, it's on the floor and I literally lay down next to her on the floor and I'm sitting there shushing and saying, it's okay, baby girl. It's time to go to bed. Night, night, Eleanor, you know? And, um, and she'll look at me and nothing will happen. She'll be sitting up and then I'll say, why don't, this is like 5.30 in the morning. And then I say, what? Do you hate us? Do, do, you, do you hate us? <laughs> And she looked at me and she paused and she threw her arms in the air and she started wailing for another hour, right? My point is simply this. We think kids are innocent because they're adorable. That's how God designed it. So when we walk in at seven in the morning after an hour of sleep, they're like, this is amazing. Isn't life good? And you don't want to give up. My point is that your kid's proclivity is towards selfishness, not towards service or selflessness. And I see it even when I'm trying to sleep train my kid. It's the case that the Bible makes it. Your kid, my kid, all kids are sinners. It's a hard reality to grasp, but it's one that we're born into as Christian. It says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. David writes in, in Psalms, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So where we start when we talk about the way they should go is understanding that their natural proclivity probably isn't towards the way that's helpful or good or beneficial or even restful for the family. So it makes the case, like the whole Bible does, that your kids, even at 10 months, need as much Jesus as I need at 35. It's a beautiful grace and truth. That's why it's important that we step into their lives and train them up. And then it comes on the back end of that verse. It says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Here's what I don't want to do this morning. I don't want to get into a huge conversation on what discipline looks like, but I want to, I want to dive into it just a little bit. Um, and so when it says that discipline will drive it far from him, it's saying here's a solution towards destructive behavior that leads to death. That part of you training your child is understanding they're bent in their practices and then part of it is disciplining when they act outside of what is wise or the things of God. Proverbs 13, 24, this is one I've heard quoted time and time again. The one who spares his rod hates his child, but the one who loves his child is diligent in disciplining him. You've heard that quote, spare the rod, spoil the child. That is not biblical. That was made up by a man named Samuel Butler in 1664. But what it's saying here is that discipline is a necessary part of raising kids. And what I want to do, what I want to lay out there is, is I'm sure there's baggage with this. And I, I'm not coming down today on whether or not you spank kids. That is not the point of the conversation. When it says rod, what it literally means there, what the Hebrew means, what's used in over a hundred times in the Old Testament, it means discipline as a whole, not necessarily physical acts of discipline. 
And so when we talk about discipline, real quick, we have to know a couple things about what discipline is, what the Proverbs means. The first one is that discipline is a corrective course of action to associate consequences with their actions. Discipline always associates consequences with actions. Psalm 19 says, discipline your child for there is hope. Do not set your child on causing his death. The point of discipline is a tie in your kid. What you do now has an impact on your tomorrow. Present actions impact your future. Tim Keller said it like this. If parents do not bring carefully controlled, unpleased consequences into the children's lives, they will go out into the world and bring far more painful and harmful results to themselves later. He goes on to say, inflicting minor sadness now avoids great despair later. It's just a reality of being a parent, and it's not fun. So when we talk about discipline, we don't necessarily mean spanking. That is a conversation you have to have with your family and one that we should not have when I'm on a stage, you know? But what it means is that we step in and correct action, that we tie consequences to action as parents because we are training them towards something. I was talking with um, Delenn Miracle this week, our women's pastor, and, and, and she said she had a a helpful kind of phrase she'd ask when it came to disciplining her kid. She said she would watch her kid doing something growing up or was told to her that she should do this. And she would ask the question, what does that look like when they become an adult? And if it looked bad or worse or far worse than they could understand now, then we step in and we correct. But if it didn't, then maybe we let it go. So she said, if my kid, for example, won't share her pacifier but shares other things, maybe that's not something I need to step into and discipline about because if they're 25 and they still won't share their pacifier, we have other issues, all right? It's a simple idea that discipline is tying consequences to action because we care about their future, I think we have to understand as we discipline towards desire. And what that means is it's what we said earlier. All kids are created different. So we don't have a disciplined path for every kid because all kids are different. I have a twin brother who is night and day different from me physically and emotionally and, and just in terms of our personality. I am an off the charts extrovert and Sean is an introvert because I didn't let him be an extrovert because I was that in my family, you know? And so... For example, growing up, if you would have told Sean, it's time for time out, go to your room, I think it would have been like, great. If you told me to go to my room, I was banished to the depths of Hades, right? I will take spankings all day long, do it again, harder. Just don't make me be alone, right? Which is my parents' fault because I'm a twin. <laughs> it's the idea that discipline, we discipline towards desire to tie consequences to action. And fundamentally, when we discipline, we always have to keep in mind the assurance of love and discipline must always come together. It's a comforting fact that we care about our kids. That's why Psalm 23 says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Your rod, they're being corrective measures to tie consequences in action. It's a comforting tool because I know that you're building into my future. And I want to end this discipline section by reading some things on the difference between discipline and punishment because I think we have to know the difference between the two. Chip Ingram says this about discipline and punishment. The idea of punishment implies repaying someone with what he or she deserves. That's the antithesis of the gospel. Punishment, punishment produces a child laden with guilt and determined to get out from under it. And Christ-likeness is never the result. An effective parent has to learn the difference between punishment and discipline. There's a book called Boundaries, and 
in there, it says that discipline and punishment have a different relationship to time. I love this. Punishment looks back. It focuses on making payment for wrongs done in the past. Christ's suffering was payment, for example, of our sin. Discipline, however, looks forward. The lessons we learn from discipline help us not to make the same mistakes again. It's what God does with us. Hebrews 12, 10. For they disciplined us a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness, keeping on going into the future. Punishment looks back, discipline looks forward. Discipline has a purpose, to train our kids in the way they should go. It's always met with and motivated from love. I want to read a longer excerpt from Adam Mark Ballinger. He's a parental counselor. Um, and I read a lot of this because, like I said to you guys at the beginning, I, <laughs> I'm not there yet, you know? Um, and as I grow into my parenting, it's interesting to think about what this looks like for me and my wife because it's going to look different for me than probably it does for you, and that's the grace of God. Motivated from the same place. This guy says, punishment is about condemnation. Discipline is about correction. Punishment is about being fair. Discipline is about doing what's the most helpful. Punishment is about making the situation right. Discipline is about helping the person get right. Punishment flows from anger. Discipline flows from patience. Punishment is a response when the relationship is broken. Discipline is a response when the relationship is working towards restoration. Punishment is about taking. Discipline is about giving. Punishment is easy to give, but hard to get anything back from. Discipline is hard to give, but easy to get benefits back from. Punishment is a sign of hate. Discipline is a sign of love. When it comes to God dealing with his children, the Bible says that God only disciplines those he loves. So when we talk about what it means when it says the way they should go and how we should use the rod in terms of correction or training them in the ways of God so that they don't die, literally what it means is we take corrective action that sometimes hurts us way more than it hurts them, even though it's trivial, because that's what good parents do and that's what God does to us. Discipline is an act of love done from a place of love that leads towards life all the time, all the time. And it's one full of nuance and conversation that changes from kid to kid and situation to situation. But it's part of being a parent because it's how we every single day train our kids to walk in the ways of the Lord. And this is the whole moment when I tell you that your job as a parent isn't to be their friend, it's to be their parent. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard, but good things normally are. And so it says in the proverb, train up your kids in the way they should go. And it finishes with a promise. It says when he's old, he will not turn from it. The first thing we have to understand when we read that is that this is a wisdom lit book. It's poetry and it's a proverb. Here's the deal. It's not a hard and fast promise, even though we think it is a promise when we read it. This is a book about the, the nature of us and the world around us and speaks in generality. But if you do these things, there's a greater, greater likelihood of. But sometimes when we read these Proverbs, they're not true every time. I'll give you a couple examples. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle response turns away anger. It doesn't always work in our world. Try to get a fight with somebody and then whisper. See what happens, you know? Or in uh, Proverbs 10.4, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Yeah, I know a lot of people that are lazier than me and drive nicer cars than I do because their parents did a good job and made some money. So for the most part, if you don't work hard, you won't have. And for the most part, if you scream and yell, you're going to get screamed and yelled back at. But sometimes these things aren't true. So when it says that if you do the right thing and train your kid when he's old, he won't turn from it. It's saying for the most part, this is a general truth. Trevin Wax is a writer and he says, there are general truths about the way the world normally works not specific promises that encompass every possible situation. And here's why that's really important. 
because your kids are going to grow up and they might follow God and they might not. And if we think this is a hard and fast promise and they are not following God, it turns into guilt and shame and the conversation becomes, what did I do wrong? And what we don't do there is understand that your kids, regardless of how good of a parent you were, have free will and make their own decisions. Nobody could take that away from you. God didn't. And you can't take that away from your kid. And so we do our best and train our kids and understand that there's an element we can't control, even though we want to control all the things we can. I was listening to the Dallas Cowboys defensive coordinator last year. They had a really bad game, and the media was asking him questions. And he says, look, all I can do is put the players in the place to make the tackles. I can't control if they do it or not. You know, I'm doing my job, essentially. I think he was talking about Jeff Heath. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> What we, what we see in this is, 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 a, is a generality and not necessarily a hard and fast promise. That's why the quote from Mark Harper sticks with me. You cannot make your kids love Jesus, but there are things you can do as a parent that will cause your kids to run to God, and there are things you can do that will cause your kids to run from God. It's frustrating. Let me just say something. Um, if you have grown kids or young kids or kids at all and they're not following Jesus, no, you're not alone. Because we're children of God. God made each and every one of us and a lot of his kids won't follow him. He knows how you feel. And if you don't think that breaks his heart, read the scripture again, you know? And so what this says is the generality that means, hey, don't heap shame and guilt upon you. Train them in the way of the Lord. And the beautiful grace is that you're not done yet, you know? Your kids are your kids, so keep modeling what it looks like to love and live into the ways of Jesus, whether they're eight or 18 or, you know, 28, 38, 48. God isn't done as a parent. It never is. And so it says, if you train them well, if you engage every day, if you discipline and then let them be them and you understand that there's a way they should go that leads towards life that reflects God's good design of the world, if you do that, there's a greater likelihood they will turn out well. When they get old, they won't turn away from the Lord. And ultimately where this whole thing ends, I love it, it's saying that the best example of parenting you have is you. Proverbs 23, 6, give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes observe my ways. 27, the righteous person behaves in integrity, blessed are his children after him. What it's talking about, just so you know what it's talking about, is not a parenting style that says, go and do these things, I'm gonna go over here. It says the best way that you can grow your kids up in the ways of Jesus is to live those out yourself as they watch it. I found some interesting stats this week. I'm gonna pick on dads a little bit because it's dad's day and I don't wanna be too nice to you. You get the wrong impression. Um, According to LifeWay Research Group, Father's Day is the holiday with the single lowest average church attendance. You know that? Lower than Labor Day, Memorial Day, and even the 4th of July. Mother's Day, on the other hand, tends to be the day with the third highest church attendance on the holidays outside of Christmas and Easter, right? So here's what I mean by that, is not to bring guilt or shame, but just to say that I think kids respond to the influence of parents that are active and that model it. That's what the Proverbs tell us. And so we train because we do. We live into the ways of God because we do. We correct because we've been corrected. And hopefully as they see our lives lived, they understand what it looks like. According to Promise Keepers in the Baptist Press, they put out a, a poll. They said, if a father does not go to church, even if his wife does, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. If a father does go regularly, regardless of what the mother does. Between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will attend church as adults. If the father attends church irregularly, between half and two-thirds of their kids will attend church with some regularity as adults. What this means is that the influence you have as fathers and mothers on your kids goes well beyond the words that you use, but how they see you live their lives. So live your life in a way that points to Jesus 
Because if you just speak to that, it comes out empty. And it doesn't lead to life. And so Proverbs paints this picture of parental wisdom. It paints a picture of a life well lived that points back to Jesus. It paints the picture of how Jesus lived with his disciples. He didn't just come out once a day, go to the synagogue, teach for an hour, and then go back to his apartment or his dwelling or his bed. He said, let me walk with you for three years, every single day, every part of every single day, and show you what life in the kingdom looks like. That is what we're called to do as mothers and fathers and parents to raise healthy, happy, God-fearing kids. But ultimately, the purpose of parenting in our world is, is joy. Roy Ortland is a pastor in Nashville, and he said, your children need something more than to be fortified against sin. They need to be inspired towards God because that's where joy exists. Somebody asked me the other day, it's like a month ago, two months ago. They said, is, is parenting more fun than not parenting? <laughs> I smiled and laughed and I said, no, it's not more fun. I said, it's better. It's better. I said, I'm going to find more fun is less money, less free time, and less things like that are tasty to eat. Because we can't leave the house. <laughs> but it's filled with joy. And that's what we see with parenting. Whether you're a parent, or whether you're a kid, or whether you're a grandparent, what we see is that when we press into God's good order to our world, it inspires joy. Proverbs 23 says it like this. We'll end here. The father of a righteous person will rejoice greatly. Whoever fathers a wise child will have joy in him. May your father and your mother have joy. May she who bore you rejoice. And what that means is that as we see good parents, whether you're a parent or a kid or not a parent yet, when you see your parents that are good or God that's good to you, it deepens our joy that God is good to us and he has good systems in our world to help us flourish. So every time we press in to good parenting in days and weeks and months, it increases our joy for what God has given and for God himself. So for example, the shirt, right? So this shirt, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but check this out. See this? See these holes right here? The shirt, I can afford a shirt, everybody. Uh, the shirt, maybe I should have done this before the offering. Uh, the shirt. <laughs> this shirt is actually my dad's shirt from the 70s. Um, and I love it for a couple of reasons. One, it's older than me, so I have a lot of hipster cred right now. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's real. Two, is this my first Father's Day? And I get to wear it. My dad's 6'4". This thing goes down to like my ankles. Um, <laughs> I get joy because my dad had a positive influence on me for years and years and years, and he grew me up in the way of the Lord. And it's a beautiful picture of the depth of joy that comes with parenting. And we can roll up these little graces, and it paints a picture of a God who loves us and cares. And I get to teach today on Sunday morning in my dad's shirt from the 70s, and I get to hold my child this afternoon and understand that when we press into God's good order, when we raise our kids well, it inspires joy. So today, on the lowest attendance Sunday of any holiday, may we be inspired towards joy and a God that's been good to us. And may that cause us to worship because that's what parenting does. We see a lot of wisdom in it, but we see a lot of joy in it too because God is good. Let me pray for us and let's sing one more song. God, I'm thankful for who you are and the grace you've given us that is the call to be parents. So hopefully today is a day of joy and reflection of, of how you've been good. If we have good parents, it deepens. If we have bad parents, we can point to you as our good father, our good parents that are surrounding us. We can be good examples in the church family that we're called to. So be with us as we parent our kids. It's a hard thing to do, so give us grace. We need lots of grace. And give us wisdom, give us strength, and give us rest in all the things that we can do to raise our kids in the way of the Lord, because in those ways we find life. Because you're good. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.